Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan. Sunbury Press publishes print and electronic books under 10 different imprints in a variety of categories sold worldwide wherever you can find books. This program is the latest in a series on the coronavirus pandemic in conjunction with the recent release, After the Pandemic, Visions of Life Post-COVID-19. Today's show focuses on the economic and environmental impacts of COVID-19. Three authors who contributed pieces to this work join me today. First is Brooke Lenker, Executive Director of the Frack Tracker Alliance, and he's also author of The Restorers, a Riley Waters expedition on Year of the Book Press, which was released in 2019. His contribution is Conservation in the Midst. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also joining us is Simon Landry, a native of Montreal, Quebec. He is a teacher of high school mathematics, and he is author of the Milford Press release, Chestnut Street. His contribution to the book is On the Economic Front. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And our third guest is the founder of Sunbury Press Books, Lawrence Knorr, author of numerous books on art, history, baseball, and other subjects. Lawrence conceived of the new collection, and he contributed the various economic impacts of COVID-19. We... We speak again, Lawrence. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tori. All right. Well, first, let us begin um, with each of you, uh, where you are currently, and how are affairs being handled around uh, your local area? Brooke, let's start with you. Yeah, Tori. I'm uh, I'm based in Camp Hill, central Pennsylvania, so um, I believe we're moving to a code yellow very soon. And so things will be uh, liberalized. There'll be a little bit more moving around allowed. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I was just noting yesterday I was I was out myself and, uh, you know, it seems like life is, is slowly um, uh, unfurling, <laughs> both in the springtime context, but also very much, you know, people's people's uh, activities. And um, I mean, it's, things, you know, it was a Friday afternoon, granted, but uh, it, things seemed almost normal. There was a lot of traffic. There were a lot of people moving around. And um, so I I think it's, you know, it's a sign of what's to come. We're going to try to get back to some normalcy, I assume. But obviously we know there's, there's still great risk. And, um, and I guess time will tell um, how, how we're all doing in terms of our practices. But, uh, but, you know, it isn't encouraging. Even yesterday I was out uh, doing, helping, uh, at a safe distance, do a uh, a tree planting project with the Yellow Breaches Watershed Association, and uh, it was it was neat to see the interest in that and people walking by and commenting on it. And uh, so I, I still remain hopeful and about you know our connections to nature, and hopefully I can talk a little bit about that this morning. Definitely. Well, I'm right across the river from you. I'm in Harrisburg, so I'm seeing a lot of the same things. And uh, I can just very basically say, because I am an essential worker, so I have to travel about during the week anyway. And um, 
it is slowly come back. There's a little bit of confidence returning, as you say, but you also make a good point is uh, there's there's some changes that really have to come about, and whether or not we adapt to them is something that we're going to need to see. Um, Simon, you and I spoke just before we went on about Montreal. Uh, your city is uh, being hit pretty hard. Please explain a little bit. Well, basically, uh, because uh, spring break in uh, in Quebec was at the first week of March, uh, there was a lot of uh, travelers that came back from you know Europe and Asia and uh, the mm-hmm. Caribbean, and we were hit pretty hard. Uh, and when you compare Montreal to the rest of uh, Canada and the U.S., we're uh, we're not doing so good. Um, the rest of the province is doing great. The schools are opening slowly. Businesses are starting up again. But Montreal is still uh, in a crisis. Uh, most businesses are still closed. Schools are going to remain closed until September for everyone, whereas outside of Montreal, uh, elementary schools are opening up again. So, you know, there's, the problem is in Montreal, per se, because outside of the city, things are slowly getting back to normal. In the city itself, you know, it's uh, the curve is slowly, very slowly starting to come down. So hopefully within, within a month or two, things will get back to some sense of uh, normalcy. But for now, we're still in the peak of the uh, infection curve here in Montreal. And you gave me something that was a rather chilling detail about uh, the older population is being hit very, very hard. Yes, uh, most of the older population in the uh, retirement centers are being hit because, you know, since there was a lot of travel at the first week of March, a lot of, lot of you know, parents and grandkids starting visiting their, their grandparents in the uh, old folks' home, and we didn't know that it, even if you were asymptomatic, you, you could still, you know, spread the disease. So, uh, you know, those uh, centers were hit very, very hard, and most of the uh, deaths in, uh, in Montreal are in those homes. But, uh, you know, we, we've had the Army come in and help because there's a lot of... Uh, there's not enough staff to take care of uh, everybody that's sick in these homes, so even the Army's come in to help, you know, uh, you know just help give uh, meals and wash, uh, you know, residents and, you know, just give basic services because they, they're hit so hard that there's not enough hands on, on the deck to, you know, to keep our head above water. So right now we're hit pretty hard, but like I said, you know, hopefully it, it, it's starting to come down for the past few days. So hopefully the worst is over. Okay, and Lawrence, uh, how about you? You are uh, are you are out to the west of uh, of uh, both Brooke and myself, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's kind of surreal out here, Tori. Uh, we live on a farm that's been here since the Revolution, and in the Boiling Springs area, which the zip code one seven zero zero seven, according to the stats I've seen, I don't think we've had any cases. So we're a little island just a little further west in Cumberland County. And really life around here has been the same as it has always been. It's been pretty quiet. It's a fairly rural area and you don't notice anything until you go to the grocery store. So drive a few miles, go towards Carlisle, Mechanicsburg, um, you know, that area. And then you start to see the masks. Then you start to see the, uh, you know, for a while we were seeing stock outs in the store. So my first indication besides turning on the news was you know going to the store and seeing the uh, the economic impacts that we're going to talk about, but 
you know, being out of certain things and, uh, you know, people panic buying and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of lucky here. We're very grateful that uh, in our immediate area, it, it has not been so prevalent, but I know all around us it's, a, it's rampant. All right. Well, let us get into these pieces that uh, that have been composed for the book. Um, I'm going to start with you, Brooke. Um, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, you begin your piece with evidence, which I don't think anybody can say is untrue. You've talked about a connection to the outdoors we may have lost, and I felt that myself over the years. I grew up in rural Vermont, and I remember that. And tell us a little bit from your perspective on what is lost, and is it possible now we might be able to have a chance of getting it back? Sure. Well, I think uh, it, you know, it probably goes without saying that one of the big drivers of um, sort of nature disconnect is is likely technology um, in terms of you know our uh, lots of screen time and other things that take us away from uh, maybe enjoying the outdoors and practicing conservation. Um, and certainly, too, there are you know other factors, but young people in particular have been been struck by what this uh, what an author uh, named um, Richard Louvre talks about as nature deficit disorder and um, you know and, and Louvre well documents uh, the the changes in, in the amount of time young people spend out outside and you know and again there's all sorts of factors that affect that I mean even just safe the fear of um, you know the fear for your children's safety um, Changes in the way schools uh, allot time for field trips and experiences in nature, you know, and the list goes on. And so, so that's a that's a real thing. And um, and there's a lot of uh, concern about that because it's it's not just about the the health and wellness aspects of um, of you know exercising in the outdoors, but it's a fear that we may sort of lose our concern about the state of nature, um, the state of our planet. And if, if, you know, if you don't have that bond, that connection to what's around you, you, you may not care. And, um, and we know that there are a lot of um, major stressors to say the least affecting, you know, planet earth. So, um, so that's, you know, that's sort of a known and I guess my contention is, or my, my hope at least, uh, is that because we've slowed down during this crisis, at least we have to date <laughs> to some extent, uh, or to, to a large extent actually, um, and that we've realized we can go without less, or, or with less rather. Um, we, can, you know, we certainly have been using uh, less energy less fossil fuels, um, then maybe that will stick. I guess that's the, you know, the underlying premise that, that some of this will stick with us. And even if when things slowly normalize that a relic of this will stay with us. So maybe it's, we'll think differently about, um, you know, what we're doing around our homes. We'll, we'll, we'll make time to continue to explore the outdoors will invest in, you know, in, in conservation, whether that's donations to organizations fighting to protect our environment or, uh, or, or supporting, you know, legislation that 
helps the, our state parks or you know our national parks, whatever that may be. Um, and I hope too that it that it overflows to how we uh, think about energy, um, you know, whether we you know get a fuel more fuel efficient car or get an electric car. I talk a little bit about that in my chapter uh, or allude to that. Um, I think I think I am cautiously hopeful that those um, practices will prevail at some level. Um, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, <laughs> a lot of variables, but, um, but I'll stand by that. I hope that's what we see. Well, that's another thing too. Um, habits. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, human nature is habits and you often hear about when someone is dealing with something such as addiction, you substitute a positive habit for a negative one. The positive habit might be, you know, that reconnection, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, um, I, yeah, I certainly hope so. And, and, um, it's interesting just, you know, I'm making a lot of anecdotal observations and even my own family, um, because we're uh, spending a lot more time here at home. I'm observing and my, my, uh, grown kids are observing and my wife's observing, um, just the nature around us. And it's really interesting to, to see, you know, my kids getting out, you know, the bird book and keying out what we're, what we're seeing in our backyards. It's, it's, and it's interesting to know too, uh, that I'm, I'm seeing, for example, bird species that I've never seen here before. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of that I attest to never having spent so much time looking out the window at my home (laughs) or, uh, or, uh, perhaps some of the some of the sightings could could have to do with the slightly cleaner air we're experiencing right now. Um, maybe a little bit more quiet because of you know the roads aren't quite as busy, et cetera. But um, seeing all kinds of interesting bird life, and I'm hearing a little from other folks a, a little bit of the same. Um, okay. So we'll yeah, we'll see, see. what happens. We will definitely see. I'd uh, like to uh, go to uh, Simon. Your first observation in your piece is a prediction of sorts that our global economy has rather maxed itself out. And you noted uh, the current economic models aren't geared for the long term. Give us an idea of what direction you think we might be facing. Well, we've already started to notice that people are, uh, you know, looking into buying local more and more because we've seen, as uh, Lawrence said, in the supermarkets, some items have been, you know, out of stock for a while because they've been produced overseas and the countries that produce those those goods have been hit pretty hard and their manufacturers are now open. And, uh, you know, so I think we've hit, you know, the, the top of uh, our capacity of uh, buying things that are made overseas, that the market has uh, hit its peak. And, you know, as I said in my piece, the market dictates right now and for the past few years that, you know, profit should be maximized at all costs. So, as I said, um, you know, if you want to buy a phone and the company that sells you that phone wants to sell it to you for say $800, well, they're going to try to make it for the cheapest possible price to maximize their profit. The problem with that, you don't create jobs that way because 
as I said in my piece, if you have a choice between buying a T-shirt for $10 that was made in the U.S. and a one that was that costs six dollars that was made in china most people are going to buy the six dollar one and think well that's not too bad i say four dollars that's a good choice but you help the factories overseas take your money and all the while the people in the the american factories are you know not working so you create an inequity of some sort whereas that you you need goods to live but you also need to help local production and if you keep if as a company you you keep to you try to keep the the profit at a maximum instead of trying to keep the community healthy it's not going to survive and as i said in my piece and i talked to lawrence about it you have to remember a time especially in the u.s but most most of north america where everything was pretty much manufactured you know inside our own borders. You know, you used to make cars and TVs and electronics and clothes. Everything was made locally. And you remember cities that were built around huge manufacturing plants. And for the past couple of decades, those plants have slowly started moving overseas to maximize profit for that company. But the problem is when you move factory overseas, the, the community that was built around that factory, they all stopped working and they all, they, they stopped you know, earning income, and they stopped buying things that was made in another factory in another community, and it's a vicious circle that's pretty hard to break free of now. But I'm starting to see more and more people, you know, here and, you know, friends abroad looking into buying more local products and encouraging things that were made locally, even though it might be slightly more expensive. You think about, you know, that that $2 I spent, for something that was made locally that, that, that cost more than the one that was made, say, in India, well, at least I'm helping someone because it creates work, it creates jobs in another community, and that person mm-hmm. is going to earn money and is going to buy a product from another community inside their own borders and so on. So it's, it, it's not a cycle that's going to be easy to break free of right now, but I think slowly we're, we're, we're moving towards that direction where we see that we've become too dependent on foreign economies to produce the goods we need to, you know, I don't, I don't want to say survive, but almost survive because some things we, we, we can't do without. I'm thinking about electronic cell phones. Nowadays, people only computers and cell phones, and those things are made overseas, and now, you know, we're dependent on those countries. So I, I think we, we have to look into, you know, encouraging local factories, local products, you know, made in USA, made in Canada, and and, you know, the, the, the trade organizations have to, you know, get uh, – I'm looking for the word, you know, geographically closer. Like U.S. and Canada and Mexico should be a nice trade organization because, you know, we, we share borders. But, you know, starting to do trade deals with foreign nations that, were, that are thousands of miles away, it might be good for the market, might be good for a company's profit, but it's not good for the people inside that country. Well, that brings me uh, to a question for Lawrence. Uh, Now, in your piece, you looked at the areas where economic impact is going to be felt, and um, it it seems like it's going to be felt, as Simon was saying, business-wise. In real estate, any of us who own property or have a connection for home or work, we're going to see changes. Uh, Tell us a little about what you think the impacts are going to be like, Lawrence. What do you think is coming? 
Wow. Yeah. I know my article was sort of a survey of the economy and, you know, I'll just um, extend a little bit what Simon was saying first. And that is, you know, what we're talking about here is in the past, you know, free trade was based on the concept of absolute or comparative advantage, meaning the lowest cost producer, the one who can make it cheapest gets the business. And when we globalize that, that means production shifts offshore and away from us. You know, and then you have the concept of economies of scale, which is that as it gets bigger and bigger, it gets less expensive to produce each unit. So that's why we have such cheap products these days, From and they're made all over the place, a lot of them in China. So, you know, we have this consumer culture of these cheap goods that you can buy everywhere, and they're, they're all manufactured overseas. You know, I argue that that's not really a sustainable approach, and that the the model for comparative advantage or absolute advantage actually misses some key elements, which are all about, are all about risk to the society. So when you take into account the total cost of all this exchange, which is the risk of a virus coming from overseas or the risk of lack of security in the local economy. So you don't have local manufacturing. You don't have a local food supply chain. Those things get really scary. And I think this COVID event has exposed a lot of that because we've seen shortages and we've, we've heard of, you know, about a lot of stress in some areas. We couldn't get PPE as quickly as we wanted. We found out there were things that we just don't make here. And mm-hmm. uh, that's pretty amazing when you consider the largest economy in the world isn't making some things, you know, in a reasonable a distance from, from home. So uh, yeah. I, I saw something the other day where the typical meat production the, the food travels well over a thousand miles on its way to the on to your plate, and mm-hmm. so local production would certainly have a lot of merits. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon, bring you back in here. You go into detail about the relationship with China, whose economy yes. uh, you know is is very much entwined with ours. You call for a breaking off of sorts. Maybe that sort of piggybacks on what Lawrence is saying. Can we accomplish something is like that? It would seem monumental on the face of it. Well, it is monumental, and I don't think you can do it overnight. I think it's something that we can gradually move towards for the next few years, few decades or so. But, you know, it is something I think we need to look into because, as Lawrence says, we've become dependent on these economies for, for, for our goods. And Lawrence talked about, you know, PPEs, for protection equipment for the medical staff. And there was actually an article in uh, Global News, at, I think it was at the end of April, where a reporter uncovered that, you know, China asked their Chinese citizens overseas to buy as much PPE as possible and send it back to China because they couldn't even manufacture their own PPEs that were hit so hard. So, you know, they, and, and then you turn around and the U.S. don't, they didn't have any PPEs available and they were dependent on China to manufacture them. So I think we need to break off on that model. And uh, yes, I think, you know, with everything we've uncovered so far about their handling of the pandemic and the way the, uh, you know, the economics, the economies are, I don't want to say unbalanced, but so, so far the trade balance is not in our favor. So I think, yes, we need to start to break off from, these, uh, from the Chinese government. And I want to be careful because 
we're talking about the Chinese government. We're not talking about Chinese people, and, and people need to be careful about when, you know, the way they approach things because Chinese people are not to blame. The Chinese government is to blame. And, yes, we need to move. We, as I said in my piece, maybe the first thing we should do is erase the debt toward China because this pandemic is going to cost trillions of dollars, and it's clearly China's fault. So the first thing I think the U.S. and most Western countries should do is default on their debt towards China because it doesn't seem fair to me that we would have to pay as a result of this pandemic and still keep a debt towards the, towards the country that was, that was responsible for it. But, yeah, we need to, to, to start, like I said, to bring you know, manufacturing back to inside our own borders, as we used to do, as you know, people are uh, of a certain age remember after the uh, Second World War, you know, most products were made locally. And as Dorit said, the only reason we, we started outsourcing those uh, manufacturing plants was to make it the cheapest possible and make maximize profits. And we've seen the results of that now. So I think it might be a good idea to start looking about you know, looking into you know bringing those manufacturing abilities back inside our own borders, mm-hmm. but it, it's not going to be easy and it's going to take some time. And of course, as I said in my piece, it all comes down to, to the consumer. If the consumer keeps buying things at the cheapest possible price, instead of buying things based on, you know, quality and where it's coming from, maybe the change can bring about, but if we keep looking for the cheapest possible deal, nothing's going to change. Okay. Yeah, Terry, this I is a question. Just interject real quick. Uh, Please do. Yeah, I just also wanted to mention it's sort of a hook for Brooke is uh, not only have we offshored the cheap to the cheapest production, but we've offshored our pollution because all this manufacturing happens overseas where there aren't the regulations that we have here. So now it's no longer in our backyard, but it's over in China, and it, but it's polluting worse than ever. So that is a question I have. That. Yeah, you know, well, that's no, that's fine because that is something I wanted to ask Brooke about. You pointed to a study about emissions and how they've drastically increased, especially in parts of China. Uh, where does fundamental need to change begin in this time when it comes to this sort of thing? Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I allude to. I, I allude to. Uh, air pollution in a couple different ways in in my chapter, both from the standpoint of how severe um, pollution is in, in certain places. And I use the example of Wuhan, China, um, because you could see it, you know, on, on satellite images very clearly. And I think even beyond the, the, the COVID period, um, we've seen, certainly seen images um, of of the just wretched pollution um, in not just in China but in India and in other places, and and you know that's that's clearly in part from what Lawrence referenced. I mean it's it's uh, it's just substandard pollution controls, but um, but I mean we have serious air pollution in this country too, and we just I mean it's it's not thankfully on the uh, to the level of uh, degradation that we see other places, but um, but we have serious problems with fine particulate matter, ground level ozone, and other pollutants. And um, so, you know, we 
we know that even small improvements in air quality can increase um, longevity, you know, and, and, and we know that, um, and sort of conversely, we know that um, high levels of air pollution, you know, really take a toll on people with pre-existing conditions and asthma, for example. It was really interesting, too. I, I mentioned this in the piece, um, how, uh, how researchers have found this connection between um, uh, areas with higher air pollution and the transmittance of COVID-19. So there's, well, two things. One, the susceptibility to it because of the poor air quality and, and the way it stresses uh, people's respiratory systems, but also um, actually the, the actual transmission of COVID-19. So it's sort of a double whammy, if you think of it that way, um, that, 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 it, that just to underscore that, that this virus can actually ride particulate matter, basically. So mm-hmm. studies have found that as well. And interestingly, even since uh, I wrote the chapter, there's been a whole slew of new air quality studies coming out. So um, I guess back to, a little bit back to your original question is um, I think, you know, we, so, so that, given that, we've also seen with this, um, as the crisis has caused these lockdowns, um, we've seen the clearing of the air. We've seen, and not just the air. I mean, we've seen it. Uh, you probably saw images of, I guess, it was in Venice of of the clear water in the canals because society slowed down. We stopped consuming as much. We stopped polluting as much. Air, water, um, uh, you know, clearing of the land, etc. And and that paid that it, it, that paid quick dividends in terms of nature showing nature's resiliency. I mean, we clearly saw that. You know, wildlife came out, and and uh, and the water cleared, and all these different things. So um, it underscores that if we um, sort of ratchet down on pollution and think about consumption, and getting back to some of the things that Simon and Lawrence said about sustainability, uh, that we can improve the quality of life um, because our quality of life isn't just measured by, you know, the things we have. It's, I mean, in terms of possessions, it's measured too in the ability to live and thrive and breathe clean air and, um, you know, and enjoy greenery and the outdoors. So, um, so I do think, you know, we've seen uh, point blank the, the uh, relationship between our practices and pollution and how just changing some things, uh, kind of monkeying with the system, how we can see at least these short-term benefits. Now, you know, things like climate change are, uh, are unraveling at a, um, well, a, 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 an accelerating pace, but, um, but still it's, it's something that, that's, that's, you know, slow moving generally speaking. And, you know, time will tell how even um, how how the short-term changes, but more importantly, long-term changes can um, can slow that. But um, but nonetheless, I think it, it 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 it's these 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 changes have been observable, and that too, I think will um, will affect our I would hope our decision making going forward. 
And then just just a final point I'd like to make, um, you know, and and this is where things get pretty complex. But obviously, we've seen with our lessening um, consumption, we've seen that that includes uh, gasoline, and we've seen price collapses in the oil market, um, and and companies are really hemorrhaging, and so it'll be interesting to see how the oil industry and the natural gas industry um, uh, weather this storm for them. But, um, but, but it's also then an opportunity in, in, in a variety of ways to accelerate this transition. And when I say the transition, meaning the transition to renewable energy, because um, I mean, yeah, it's, it, there's there's a double tension with low gas prices. We may be tempted to, uh, you know, keep driving a, a larger vehicle, and because we're not as worried about the price of gas. But um, but there's also this sort of more this larger uh, economic inertia that if the one industry is sort of crashing, let's how can the other industries like renewables take advantage of that? So um, it'll be really interesting to see how we might prevail in accelerating the renewable energy transition as a result of the various dynamics that I just mentioned. Well, this question is for Lawrence, but uh, Simon and Brooke uh, jump in on this as well. Um, the way we do business is already changing, and we are, we've talked about this a little bit before. We are looking as an industrialized we, – we have two industrialized nations we're talking about here ourselves – we're looking at potential downsizing of the economy, and where do you think we're going to need to see downsizing? Where do you think that kind of change is, is going to be initiated? Wow. Um, well, first of all, as you know, our whole American economy, the whole West, the free market economy is based on growth, growth in productivity, growth in consumer consumption, growth in population. So, yeah, when you start to talk about downsizing, that, that runs completely counter to the structure of our whole system. And so at a high level, the main concern I have is about uh, anytime you talk about downsizing, uh, you're talking about what could trigger a deflationary cycle, which is like a death spiral in finance where you're waiting for things to be cheaper and cheaper and you're not spending your money. Uh, that was what happened during the Great Depression and was the main reason why um, we had the collapse that we did. It was a lack of demand. So you got to be very careful that when you're trying to get through this that you don't collapse demand by downsizing too much or by changing habits too quickly because the whole system can collapse. And you can see what happens when the system starts to collapse. You get unintended consequences. So it's it's um it's important that whatever transition we're going to go through that we manage it to do it gradually and it is clear that we need to onshore more rather than offshore so much we need to be more sustainable onshore yes we could probably do with a little less in our homes we could probably eat a little bit less food we could be outside more than we are all those things are good but you know when you get to the energy piece and you talk about downsizing, let's say, oil. We, we just saw the really scary situation where it, it collapsed so much that you had to pay to give away your oil. People didn't want to buy it for a while because there wasn't storage capacity. And so 
when you get to that point where gasoline has a negative price, essentially, uh, that's that's a pretty bizarre state to be in. Obviously, not normal. And, and um, that's, and a, just to go that's and the kind of thing that can touch off yeah. a panic. Yeah, and just yeah. just to note with the energy thing, I studied this a while back and gave a talk during the peak oil phase in the early 2000s before fracking, and before Brooke got all upset about fracking as the United <laughs> States was declining. <laughs> In its uh, ability, before we were energy independent, uh, you know, we were at this point of peak oil where we were terrified. I remember talking about, you know, our structure and our economy is oil-based. You know, our shopping malls, our highways, our cars, everything. There's such a multi-trillion dollar investment in that and that we were about to reach a peak where we wouldn't have that energy cheap. You know, it wouldn't be as cheap as it was anymore. Lo and behold, we go through this revolution now. Oil's cheap. The unfortunate thing with energy is there's no quick, easy substitute for the amount of power that you get and the independence that you get with petroleum products. And it's going to take some time for us to innovate our way through that. But, Tori, uh, I see a lot of areas where there could be downsizing. Uh, I'm very concerned about uh, the service sector, especially about restaurants. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a collapse in the whole restaurant industry. We're already seeing brick-and-mortar retail uh, collapsing companies declaring bankruptcy. You're going to have empty malls. Where, where malls were dying slow, malls will be done. Where you have well, we just heard that JCPenney has yeah. filed for bankruptcy. There's another one. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and so really concerned about, you know, one thing we like to do is go out to eat. I'm, I'm worried that that's not going to be uh, easily done in the new era. I mean, there's going to be new concerns about transmitting viruses in these businesses. We'll see what kind of regulations come along, too from state and local governments about that, uh, that's going to change dramatically. Education is something that, you know, we're all concerned about. How are we going to execute that? I mean, it just doesn't seem to work yeah. as well online as it does in mm-hmm. person. So I let, well, those, uh, let the other guys talk. Yes, uh, uh, Simon, let's bring you in again. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to touch on what Lawrence talked about a few minutes ago. I, I, like you said, you know, I, I think... There's going to be some downsizing, but a few things we need to remember is the first thing, you know, we talked about the Great Depression. We recovered from it eventually. It wasn't easy. It took a while, but, you know, you know, the old saying, life finds a way. But it will be hard for the next few years, maybe in the next few decades. But, you know, the economy will shift. The economy will transform and will find a way to be sustainable again. But, yes, we need to look at, you know, ourselves as consumers about our buying habits, Lawrence said it. We talked about it. it might be over-consuming a bit. Just look into the easiest example to look about it. You know, smartphones. Most people change their phones once a year, even even sometimes twice a year. And you need to ask yourself: Do you really need to change your phone that often? You know, just to mm-hmm. get a sharper camera or a few apps that you didn't need to before. I mean, you need to think about okay, can I buy something that was made locally, might cost a little more, so maybe I'll change it every two years instead of changing it every single year. So that Mm -hmm. kind of transformation will take place, I think, over the next few years because, like we said, it's not – the the current model is not sustainable, and the current model is driven by maximum profit at all costs, and the profit is not for the workers – it is for the investors. And when a company decides to outsource its production overseas, it's not to make the consumer happy. It's not to make 
its employees happy is to make its investors happy so that they make maximum profit and that money returns to the investors. And I think we've uh, seen, you know, the result of that current economic model that we've been in for the past few decades. So I think that shift is going to take place. And yes, I know as a teacher myself, uh, I, I think teaching will be transformed even as we speak right now. You know, every schools are closed over here and they will be until September, but we need to, we're scrambling right now to find a way to teach to our kids because even though the schools are closed, the school year is not over and we're trying to figure out ways to teach, you know, remotely to our students and everybody's trying different things and it, it, everybody's scrambling. It, it, it's not easy, but I think even that will be transformed. Maybe classrooms will be smaller, maybe even schools will be small because even I, I remember when my wife used to work in the U.S. just visiting her in, the, in Philadelphia, the size of the school are like, you know, small cities. And it, it was mind-boggling to me to see, a, you know, a school that size to me was unimaginable. Mm -hmm. So even well, Brooke, that gonna... will be looked into. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, please finish your thought. No, I'm, I'm, I'm finished. Thanks. Okay. Brooke, in the time we have, you get the last word. Hey. Well, um, I, I guess I just wanted to play, uh, expand on something that, that has been a theme in the conversation about um, sort of uh, bringing our economies home, you know, more uh, local reliance. And um, and I think an interesting way, and, and this is something encouraging in, <laughs> in the face of all this uh, consternation, is that, you know, people are gardening again. And, um, you know, raising vegetables. And um, I had a little panic when I when I couldn't find any seeds. Uh, I mean, I'm a, a pretty avid gardener and I take it for granted that I can just go find the seeds in the spring that I need. And uh, not this year. <laughs> they were they were the shelves were bare. So uh, but but the upside of that is that people are, uh, you know, kind of reconnecting to the land and um I mean, I, I totally hear what uh, and agree with what Lawrence was saying. It's it's frightening to think about our restaurants, but at least uh, the when we think about food that we know folks are interested in in growing it themselves, having access to fresh produce at least part of the year. And um, and anyway, and I think that's too obviously related to this sort of uh, back to nature uh, reconnection with you know, the living earth that is, is really important. I mean, it's, 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 it's tied into all these other things very much so, but uh, yeah, I just think it's really interesting to see this uh, victory garden craze again. It's, it's wonderful. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there. Gentlemen, thank you all for this uh, discussion. We could have gone on all day, but I really appreciate it. All of you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Our guests have been Brooke Linker, Simon Landry, and Lawrence Knorr, all of whom have offered their views in After the Pandemic, Visions of Life Post-COVID-19, available at Sunbury Press Books, as well as Amazon and other online sellers. A programming note, the next program in our series, COVID-19, Impacts on Education, follows here at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, so just a little over an hour from now, right here. I'm Tori Gates, your host. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.